We can talk about anything you want As J-Flaunts is ignorant well, Welcome to J-Flaunts is Ignorance, episode 39 I'm once again with Chris Hoover, which we do every weekend once a month, <laughs> once every two months. That's a close weeks. approximation, I guess. June 4th was our last recording. What is today? So it's been two months since we've done our weekly podcast. We are really good at this, Chris. That's, that was June 4th. Well, I think I can I can be blamed for the last one, at least partially, because it took me so long to finish it because I went out of town and oh, that was. <laughs> um. Yeah. So today I, th- I thought we'd talk about um the way that you grew up and the way that I grew up and our young adult experiences, which are very different. Um, and just compare and contrast notes about that because we, we talk about uh, a lot of gun stuff (laughs) recently. And, um, my understanding is that your dad was a police officer somewhere. Um, and my parents were both ministers. They were both, uh, ministers in the reorganized church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So, and you were in the Mormon church for years or you were raised Mormon. Is that yeah. right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, I was. Yeah. So, so I was, I don't remember how much you remember about the R LDS church. So you were, you grew up in the LDS church. I grew up in the R LDS church and um, those churches I think are very different is my understanding. And I, I often describe the church that I grew up in as Mormonism, but like with all the interesting things taken out <laughs> Like if you wanted to make Mormonism really boring, (laughs) that's the church that I grew up in. And both my parents are ministers. So they're, um, you know, every most weeks they are uh, uh, doing pastor duties. Um, When we lived in Western Canada, my dad was a regional uh, Western Canada guy. So he was driving six, eight, 10 hours all over the place uh, to do ministries all over Western Canada. Then we moved to Detroit and he was another regional something. He was more of a bureaucrat at that point. He was uh, doing a lot of paperwork, is my understanding, from the central office kind of thing. And then we moved to Sioux City, Iowa. But anyway, um, I grew up in a very, I, I kind of call it, a, a, it, it feels in retrospect, and I don't know if my parents will listen to this, but uh, I've described it as kind of a Brady Bunch sort of um, sheltered kind of uh, environment where, like, you know, one of my dad's pet peeves growing up was the show Married with Children came out and he hated that show. <laughs> like he hated everything about that show. So we weren't allowed to watch that. Um, and like our, my recollection is that our TV time was really restricted, that we had to have a lot of, you know, physical activities or, you know, whatever. Like you always had to be in a club. You always had to be doing something. Um, and I feel like um, when I got out of um, that, environment and got out on my own and started dating some people that had come from very different um, backgrounds where their parents would like scream at each other. And that was like normal that my head just exploded. Like I couldn't wrap my head around how that's normal or whatever. So anyway, as a son of a police officer, I'm curious about how growing up was in terms of uh, how much exposure you got to the worst case scenarios. If your dad ever had really bad days of work and how that came home, if it came home at all. And uh, I assume you were exposed to a lot more uh, conversations about, Hey, these criminals are out doing crime. And um, here's the story that I, you know, had at the office today. Whereas my stories from the office today were, you know, about uh, people being sick in hospitals and laying on a fans and all that kind of thing. When they, when they talked about their days at work, my mom is a medical social worker. So obviously lots of people, in the hospital setting die, but, um, it was always about my mom trying to help, you know? Uh, and so I'm just, I'm just curious what your recollection of, of growing up with a police officer dad was. I don't really have a close relationship with my dad. I'm not really quite sure why he kind of really kind of, um, was attached to my older brother. Cause when I was a teenager, I'd ask my dad to take me shooting, take me for rides in his cop car. Even as an adult, I asked him that and he, he never would. I have no idea why he took my older brother to do these things all the time. Hmm. I, I, I honestly can't really answer why my dad never really wanted to do anything with me, but growing up, he did look out for me and he, he was at, at least in my opinion, like from what I heard, um, people would thank me for what he did for them as a police officer. 
So I, I do think that he was a good cop and he definitely helped people. He, I think he preserved rights. I, I think he... I think he did the best with what he knew how as a police officer. As far as like the my connection to it, he never really confided in me any experiences that he had at work. In fact, I, I don't know what the bulk of his time was from a small town in Mexico, Missouri. And it I don't think I've ever really been exposed to, um, I guess, the dark side of my hometown. I do think it exists. So when I was growing up, I would hang out with anybody and... I, I tried not to like judge people by any anything. I just you know I, I hung out with people. There was a there was a couple people where my dad said I don't want you hanging out with those guys, and I, I didn't after he said that. In retrospect, I think he was actually right to ask me not to hang out with them. Mm-hmm. I, I think they were part of the wrong crowd. I think they got into trouble. They got into serious trouble later on in their life. I don't think my dad wanted me to be around that. So it, in a way, he never really invited me to do things with him uh, to shoot guns and do all these things. But he certainly cared about me. He definitely cared about my welfare. And uh, as far as being a cop goes, I, I do think that there, I see this every aspect of my life. It's not just police officers, but when you give somebody authority over other people, I feel like there's this mental kind of connection that comes from that. And they kind of, I don't know if abusing it is the right word, but they tend to, um, it kind of becomes a part of who they are. So I was, I used to work, late hours at a grocery store while I was in high school. I was, I remember it was being like an exceptionally long day and I walked out and got my car and it was in the part where all the employees park. And it was, uh, so it's against the law. It was against the law to like sit in a parking lot, you know, for no reason, you know, to loiter. So, uh, one of the police officers come up to me because I, it was a long day. I, I just, I took my vest off and I sat in my car and I just closed my eyes for a second. Um, just put my head like back up against the seat just before I drove home. And it couldn't have been more than two minutes. And this uh, younger officer pulled up. His name was Dick. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> who actually wants to go by. <laughs> but <laughs> He was like. Hey, you know, you're not supposed to be here. And he was totally rude to me and just uh, wanted me to get off the lot. And I was like, dude, I, I literally just sat in my car. If you, if you would have seen me walk out from there, take my vest off if you were here just a little bit sooner. So uh, he was just a total douchebag. Um, and he didn't know who I was. And I, I have never in my life used my position to say, hey, my dad's your boss or whatever. Mm-hmm. So uh, at, at any rate, I, I told my dad about the experience and. uh and my dad actually was his boss. And I'm pretty sure at the time that I knew my dad was his boss. The next day, my dad was, and he called me up. He's like, hey, can you do me a favor and, and swing down by the police station for a little bit? I was like, all right. So I walk into the police station, and there's Officer Dick right there standing next to my dad. And my dad, I said, hey, Chris, come over here. And he, he said, uh, Dick, this is my son. His name is Chris. If you fuck with him, you fuck with me. Don't, don't oh, be an asshole to him anymore. Really? And there was another instance where. So, so the lesson wasn't don't be an asshole to citizens. The lesson was don't be an asshole to Chris specifically. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I think that my dad was a good to people. Um, and, and I'd never had like a, a, an actual white person come up to me and say, Hey, you know, your dad did this for me. And, it was literally always minorities that would come up to me and be like, man, I love your dad. He, he helped me when I really needed it. They know so, who's your dad. Oh, everybody. I mean, it's a small town. It's only like 13,000 people. But Officer Dick didn't know it was you? No, he didn't. He was pretty young, though. Uh, he, he was. Um, was he new? Where did yeah. he grow up there? Well, I, I actually don't know too much about him other than he was fairly new. And. Um, I personally have never flaunted anything like that, anything of the sort where I said, my dad's a cop, you know, you can't do anything to me. I've always just, whatever comes, like, that's that's fair, you know. <laughs> At the end of the day, he, I think he made it about me because he was upset that it happened to me. You know, I, I think that uh, if my and my dad was always kind of like this emotionally reactive person. I think if he would have had a minute to sit down and think about it, he probably would have been more of, hey, just don't treat people in general like a jerk. And... In Dick's defense, we actually, as a city, did have a problem with people loitering in parking lots. 
and like lots of high school students loitering in parking lots on a regular basis during this time period. Mm-hmm. So it was, it wasn't inappropriate for him to tell me to get off the lot. It was just the fact that he wasn't paying attention to his surroundings. He didn't notice that I'd literally just walked out of the building and closed the building down. <laughs> well, you can do with your job without being an asshole. That's right. Oh yeah. And that's, that's a hundred percent true. Uh, and pretty universally true. actually. <laughs> yeah. Usually people knew me by name or, you know, our family by name. Uh, there was one time I was late for work. Matter of fact, uh, school got out at three fifteen, and I had to be there at three thirty. And I'd forgotten something at home. It's a small town, so everything's closed. Mm-hmm. And so there was this like little park road that was about fifteen miles per hour was the speed limit. Nobody was ever on it. There was never school buses. School was still in session everywhere. So I was actually doing forty five down this road where the speed limit was fifteen. And there was a cop. I come over the hill. I was like, oh man. He pulls me over. I don't. I mean, I don't say anything. He's like, "Can I get your license and registration?" I was like, "Yeah." So I got it out and handed it to him. I remember him like looking down at it and looking up at me. He's like, "Hey, Chris, what are you up to, man? What's going on?" He, you know, and I, I got off of that. You know, I, I didn't ask for that. There's definitely some perks from being a police officer's son, and I, I think that's actually kind of universal. Um, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, small town politics. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was nobody around. Whatever. I mean, you shouldn't speed. It's not like I actually made it a habit of speeding either. But so there were some good things about having my dad in the police department. I th- I think it related to guns, though. Like I said, I had actually asked him to take me to the range to shoot. I had never sh- I never shot a-, a rifle or anything until I went to Idaho and my uncle took me out shooting. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. How much uh, older is your brother? He's uh, nine years older than me. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, So uh, admittedly, I know that my dad could not have taken me around in the cop car when I was actually in high school. Mm -hmm. But when I came back from the military, he could have taken me around. You know, I was only 23. Well, so what I what I think I hear you saying is from your perspective, your dad being in law enforcement was just like any other job that you didn't feel more targeted than anybody else. No, you also didn't. You didn't feel like. um your father was a thin blue line protecting you from a society that was imploding. I mean, I don't think so. Yeah. So it's just any other job. He could have been an accountant or the, or the cop and it didn't really matter. Yeah. I'd, I'd say so. Yeah. I, uh, my dad, I mean, he was a good dad. I mean, he was, he was always there. He never left my mom, you know, he, 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 he managed our finances well. I mean, he did. He's a smart guy. I, I, I definitely had a good childhood. I think, Kelly would actually probably disagree with that statement. <laughs> I, I would say that she actually kind of grew up along the lines of more like uh, 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 you in the sense that, and, and maybe I'm interpreting what you said wrong, but it's uh, it's almost like you grew up in a world where almost nothing bad happened in a way. You know, like you didn't have to see people yelling at each other. You didn't have to, I mean, you just weren't around violence or anything like that, like on a regular basis. Yeah. I, I remember going to my best friend's house. And I don't even remember what happened. And the mom screamed at the dad. And I'd never seen that before in my life. (laughs) And so I'm shell shocked. I think there's, you know, divorce or riot police coming or something. And they were just having an argument. And I'd never seen that because both my parents are, you know, mediator trained. So they're every time there's a disagreement, there were disagreements. But every time there's a disagreement, the volume comes down. (laughs) Right. The focus gets intense, but you talk, you never raise your voice. You would never throw anything for God's sakes. And so learning that other people's families have very different ways of expressing emotion. (laughs) So like in my family, my recollection was our way of expressing emotion was extremely intellectualized and very language oriented. Right. So when you got mad, you would, Maybe you're tense, but you would speak very slowly and very clearly about your feelings. <laughs> That's how it would work. Whereas uh, my, you know, relationships I was in and other people's parents and other people's households, when you got mad, you would blow up for five seconds yelling about whatever that was. And that was it. Right. It was over. Yeah. Whereas, you know, my my parents system takes a lot longer than five seconds. Right. People aren't yelling at each other, you know, so yeah. you, you have to slowly 
methodically communicate what the disagreement is and what the other person's perspective is and what your perspective is and why that gap is not acceptable to you at this time and is emotionally making you feel uh, <laughs> whatever you're feeling. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Yeah. And so my experience with gun safety and things like that never actually came from my dad. In yeah. fact, I would say he was probably reckless. That's really surprising because your your dad would have guns in the house, right? Because it was his job. He did, and um, and I, I think it's also surprising too that um, he was so reckless about that as well. Were they just sitting on the nightstand? And yeah, they were. My my gun safety talk was, um, if you touch this, I'm going to beat you to death, sort of thing. <laughs> But he left it fully loaded with the magazine in the chamber on his uh, on his dresser. Mm-hmm. He'd come home from work, he'd take it out, sit it on his dresser. And there's a loaded gun right there. How's it going to beat you to death when you're the one with the gun? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, I, maybe, maybe I should have asked him that. I don't know. Yeah, I can't imagine. Like when I first got into guns and we introduced the gun into the house for the first time and my son was, I don't know, 13 or something because I was getting into shooting sports. I was like, oh, well, this, is, this is fun. I mean, we, I, I, we both, we, we sat him down and had a huge gun safety talk before there was ever a gun anywhere in the house. Mm -hmm. It was never loose. It was always in the, you know, and so he could help me clean it and stuff if he wanted to, like when he was in the mood, if we'd go shoot and you know, he's, he's going to clean it. So, you know, there's gun parts around the house, Mm -hmm. but the ammunition is in the safe. Like there's no way it's, it's physically impossible (laughs) that we could have had a negligent discharge because the ammunition was never anywhere near the gun when the gun was being handled for cleaning. Mm-hmm. Etc. You know that's my level of paranoia around gun safety, right? And and I think that the I think that it's important to actually have that aspect when you're around guns. And I think the gun culture itself, um, at least everything that I've been involved with, safety is like the most paramount thing when it comes to guns. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, one thing that happened in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial that kind of really caught me off guard was. I think it was his the the prosecutor his closing arguments. He picked the AR-15 up off the count off the the evidence counter table thing whatever, and he picked it up and had it in his hand and he was literally swinging it with the barrel towards the jurors. Hmm. And I thought to myself, what a reckless piece of shit! You know, like well, presumably the only live ammunition in the entire room is in the deputy's guns, right? In the Oh, that's true. Guns. That's true. But right. one of the first elements of gun safety is that you right. don't point it at something you don't want to shoot. But for that lawyer, it's not even a gun. It's a prop in a trial. And that's and that's actually very true. And and I, I learned from like uh, just doing some research on it that that's actually it, it, in that way, it was actually used as a prop to intimidate and scare the jurors. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, it's 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 an actual tactic used by the prosecutor. But in my mind, it's, it, I mean, it, it was just reckless. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and, and that's just my own mentality about gun safety and the, and, and the importance of following the basic rules of gun safety. Well, yeah. And if you're a juror on that jury, like if I was in the jury and yeah, you, you can't use a real weapon and point it at me. I don't care where the bullets are. Yeah. Exactly. That's, I mean, so I'm not just going to sit there. I'm going to get thrown off that jury probably and <laughs> get a mistrial declared. Hi, Missy. Yeah. <laughs> or whatever, however that works. But, right. Yeah, no, because I've got that so ingrained in me. I just saw your, just saw your guitar mural here. So the Rage Against the Machine uh, guitar says arm the homeless on the body of it. Yeah. Right. Which I think is funny because the, you know, the song fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. And then he tells people to do stuff. <laughs> and the response is anything other than fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> like, or does that only apply to the government and not apply to the band? Like you are supposed to do what the band says, but not what the government says. Is that? What the... <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess the idea is fuck that you're who specifically, I yeah. won't do what, who specifically won't. <laughs> right. Me. So yeah, uh, before we were so rudely interrupted by crazy dogs that wanted to say hi. Uh, uh, what were we talking about? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, that's very interesting because that's very different from the way I was raised. Cause we never had a, any sort of weapon or self-defense thought in the entire house was me taking Taekwondo classes, <laughs> you know? So I had like 
white belt, yellow belt, green belt, however far I got, not very far, um, in the house. And that was it. Like we didn't have, uh, any kind of weaponry kind of stuff. So it's not like they barred us from having transformers toys or something like GI Joe's. I think we had some of that, mm-hmm. but you know, we were not, uh, uh, not encouraged to do like violent video games or whatever. I don't, but we didn't have like huge active bans against all kinds of stuff. But yeah. anyway, I just, I just find it interesting because my, my perspective of my parents' job, uh, was very much about, you know, a community building and trying to assist people. So do you, do you think your dad being a cop had anything to do with your joining the military? No. Uh, uh, in, in fact, I would say that he kind of thought that I wanted to follow in his footsteps, but that actually wasn't the case at all. Oh, so your dad was in the military. Yeah, he was. He was a he was a captain in the infantry in the army. Mm. I, I was kind of more along the lines of, well, I mean, nine eleven happened, and I signed up the following weekend mm. as kind of like a response to kind of help out. And how old were you? Let's see. Uh, I would have been twenty one at the time. Oh, you're quite a bit younger than me. I was born in seventy five. Well, I'm only four years younger than you. Was I only 25 when 9-11? Oh, no. I was about to turn 22. Yes. Uh, three weeks later, I would have turned 22. Was your brother in the Army? No. So as far as, uh, what do they call it? They don't call it pedigree. What's it called? When, you're, when your parents have done something and then you've done something yeah, like my... legacy. Oh, so as I far think... as legacy, you didn't have like seven generations of Army people. No. And your dad wasn't even all that amped up about it. He wasn't. He was pretty neutral yeah. on your decision. Yeah. So my dad actually never talked about the army all that much. Uh, he actually got um, a purple heart and he actually had a lot of awards, uh, but he never talked about his time in Vietnam very often. Uh, so it's not like uh, I had like all these stories and kind of a, a base to to be like, oh, yeah, I want to follow in my dad's footsteps and join the army. I mean, it just wasn't that case. It, that just wasn't the case at all. Were you in the church at the time? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I had just gotten back off my mission. So what did, what are the LDS's thoughts about active military service? Are there a lot of military folks in the Mormon church? I, I'd say, yeah, it's not like overwhelming. There are some, there is certainly a presence there. You know, you, if you wanted, you could find an, uh, an LDS chaplain. There's usually always a, like a military branch or, um, ward or whatever that you, uh, that you could be a part of no matter where you go. And that's even true about, you know, low density LDS places like Germany or something like that. You know, if you're in the military, you can, there's a, a usually a ward there where you can go and participate. So it's there, there's a pretty significant presence, but uh, is a ward a kind of, is that a church? Oh What's yeah. So like, um, like if we lived like in Kansas, like in the outskirts of some town or something, and we could only find like, um, 10 people that could get together to have a meeting and to have sacrament and stuff like that. I think they would call it a branch. But once you get to like a regular attendance of over uh, of a certain amount, it's like over a hundred or 150 or something like that. I, I don't know what the exact number is, but once you get to that level, you become like an official, what they would call a ward, oh, which okay. um, the, the church is kind of organized like that in the sense that branches or wards make up a stake. And then, you know, they, it just kind of has like this kind of branch effect kind of trickling down to different size of organizations. And then you have like stake meetings and ward meetings and um, things like that. And it, it it's just how it's organized as all. Well. I, I forget sometimes that that's not actually a normal <laughs> thing. Well, we just call them branches. Yeah. So it's the same, same thing. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, that surprises me to know that in Germany where you're stationed that you would have access to specifically LDS clergy. Mm-hmm. Like I, I didn't know that, yeah. but those bases are huge, right? I mean, depending on what base you're on. Yeah. And it's all voluntary stuff. Like you don't get paid to be a bishop or anything like that. Yeah. Oh, so you could become an LDS. So you'd just done your mission. You could become an LDS uh, chaplain if you want in the army. Oh, I, I actually, I'm not sure how that would work. Um, but the chaplain doesn't, if you're like an LDS chaplain, he wouldn't run the local ward. He would just be like your representative in the army, I guess. Hmm. Um, so like you could go and confide in him. So uh, I was actually active in the church when I was in Afghanistan 
we actually had a chaplain, but he wasn't LDS. So he actually just made sure that when we were doing things in Afghanistan, like we would kind of uh, congregate and there'd be two or three of us together and we'd do the sacrament or whatever. He would just make sure that we had the things that we needed in order to have our services. So even though the, the chaplain wasn't specifically LDS, he just, it seemed to me like he just encouraged us to do whatever it was in line with our faith. So, and I would imagine an LDS chaplain would do the same thing, not only for LDS little meetings, but every, every meeting mm. and just be there for somebody that wants to, if you want to talk to him, <laughs> I so don't when, know. I kind of thought they were pointless and they should be not in the army, but whatever. <laughs> so when you were active duty and active in the LDS church, you didn't feel any conflict there. That that was like I'm, I'm imagining that I would have a lot of uh, inner turmoil <laughs> in terms of <laughs> the way that I was raised is God is love and God is peace and all the New Testament stuff was always the focus right so mm-hmm. it was always turning the other cheek and whatever so with my religious upbringing I can't wrap my head around how I could ever be violent to people for a living, like systematically violent people. I'm not saying you were doing that. I'm just saying that that's the point of the army is to fuck shit up. Right. And I I don't know how I would jive the way my parents taught our Christian upbringing with, uh, being part of a system that is so armed and conflict oriented. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I never had a problem with it. I, I guess I kind of looked at it like, um, if there wasn't good people, that encourage love and getting along in the military, then it would be kind of even an extreme, probably probably an extreme version of what you just described as the job. You know, like if there wasn't there's for somebody to say, hey, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. It probably just would be out of control. I felt like um, that was kind of mean. Me and my role there as a, a religious person was to keep it in line with at least what I thought was moral, you know, and along those same lines that, you know, like we, we kind of worked pretty closely with the locals and the, the local Afghanis and stuff like that. And, um, it seemed like people would treat them different. And to be fair, they, they did need to be treated different. I, I can give you an example of that if you want, but I didn't think that they should be treated poorly. I, I, I would tell people that all the time that, you know, just because they're different doesn't mean that we should degrade them or, be mean to them or, or call them names that they find offensive. Uh, for example, uh, Haji, do you know what that word means? No. So it's like a title that you get if you actually make the journey to Mecca. You would get, so, you know, like if your last name was Mohammed, you would be called Haji Mohammed, right? Mm. So it kind of became like a slang thing to just call him Haji, you know? Mm. But that's not how they use the word. You're, you're supposed to be able to earn that word. So they didn't like it when we called them that universally. And, you know, and I I would encourage people to not be disrespectful to them. Just just be kind to them. I mean, it's not even that hard. You know, if they don't want to be called Haji. Don't call them Haji. But where I, uh, where I do think that we did what maybe some people would probably even frown on today was that we, we, we actually segregated the bathrooms. And I can go into why we did that, but if you wanted, but... Uh, that that was actually something I felt like we should do, you know, and I felt like um, even though maybe we were a armed force, that didn't mean that we couldn't be a force for good. And that's, I guess that's just kind of the way I looked at it. I so, mean, so when you, I've never been in the military, obviously. So when you, when you have a set of orders to carry out those orders, you felt like you still had enough personal empowerment that you could try to make people more responsible with how they treat people respectfully. Like you, you as a, as a member of your platoon or whatever the lingo is, sorry, mm-hmm. that, that you could rein in some of the, you know, racism or whatever that's going on, or just maybe it's casual racism. Maybe it's outright hatred. Like if, you know, if somebody shoots my, my, uh, my brother, you know, and looks a certain way, I totally understand a visceral reaction of, hatred towards, you know, fuck everybody in this country because my friend's dead. Mm -hmm. You know, I understand where that shit comes from when the violence erupts, but you felt like it was also within your uh, sphere of influence that you could try to make life better on the ground with the people you're trying to cooperate with. Yeah. You could rein people in. And 
And and I think what made that possible was that I wasn't the only one that felt that way as well. So there was other people that had, you know, high moral values that they held other people to. And that if you were kind of on that side, that um, even if it was disobeying orders or turning in a leader, then you weren't by yourself. I think that that's what kind of made that possible. So if everybody that wasn't religious kind of just got out of the military and there was just like one person in there that wanted to uh, encourage people to be better people <laughs> along, you know, religious lines, kind of like what you described, it would be nearly impossible because if they stood up to them, then they'd, they'd be punished or treated the same as the people they were trying to protect. But since there's so many people there that do want to do what's right and good, then it, it, it just makes it possible. Did you feel like the people that were pushing for that were the religious people? I don't think so. Oh, okay. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that that's just the universal thing. I, I definitely don't think that you need religion to be moral. And, you know, and I can even tell you a story. So like, and maybe I told you this before about the kid that came in that was shot. So, and I, I don't even think uh, that the, that it's, I think there's a really gray area. Some people just react and, and they react uh, because they see something that's evil, but that their reaction could actually cause more evil. <laughs> so what had happened was, so we actually ran like, um, like a, I don't know if you call it like a triage, but we actually had doctors, you know, out there. We at least had some facilities, you know, that we could teach, uh, treat the common things that happen with soldiers, you know, like gunshot wounds, you know, like, uh, you know, like bombs and things like that. So uh, a guy brings his kid in and it had been shot. So they asked him, you know, like, well, what happened to him? And he was like, well, he didn't listen to me, so I shot him. That in and of itself can cause like a visceral reaction, even in good people, to just be angry, you know, <laughs> that they did this to their own child. Oh, you're, you're saying an Afghani father yeah. shot their Afghani child. Yeah. Because the Afghani child wasn't listening. Right. And then, uh, you know, and then somebody in the army who grew up, Maybe something like maybe you did and they they imagine their their own child and then they they're like, I need to get some revenge on this father, this dickhead father. <laughs> you know, so, you know, they maybe they pull out their sidearm and they want to teach his father a lesson. But there were people that stood up and said, hey, we shouldn't be doing this. And then that person ends up getting prosecuted in the military. Right. Uh, at, at least the Afghani father. Uh, no, no, the um, the person that pulled his sidearm and pointed it at the father <laughs> because he did this to his son <laughs> out of anger and just kind of like a reaction. You know, like it, it, it's not like he's planned in his mind. Oh, I'm just going to look for any excuse to pull my firearm on somebody. It's I mean, it's a reaction. You know, he was a good person. He had like a low moment, but there were people there that stopped him. And then the military had, you know, its reaction and relieved him of his command. Uh, I'm not saying it was a good thing. I'm just saying that. Um, oh, I don't. The, I don't know how to feel about that. Yeah, I mean, it, people. Because I, I can picture me doing that. Yeah, I mean, it's not. And maybe I should be relieved of command. I don't know. <laughs> maybe yeah. that's maybe so, that's the correct course of action. So, and and there is. I guess what I'm trying to say is that um, if we lived in a world where everything was black and white, and the military was the dark side. I think I would have had a problem being there, but I think we live in a, a gray world. And I do think that the actual, the, our military was doing literal good over there just because we had guns on our side. Didn't change that. Well, no, and I, I don't think my parents think that everyone in the military mm -hmm. is doing bad things. Mm -hmm. there, there's lots of people in my parents' church that are military, you know, former military, active military, et cetera. So yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a black and white thing for my parents right there. I, I I think I remember my mom saying if I ever joined the military I'd be in huge trouble. But that's the one thing she couldn't she couldn't support. Mm -hmm. But she didn't really explain that at the time. But but I think it's just that my parents have a very uh, peace oriented like they're they're constantly involved in organizations that are you know Missourians for peace or Nebraskans for peace or whatever like it's pacifist. It's pacifist activism, right? So the, the 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 pressure that they're trying to put on the political infrastructure is away from violence in all forms, mm -hmm. you know. So that's very anti-military, obviously, in terms of right. <laughs> what <laughs> the military is not a pacifist organization, <laughs> so, right? Um, 
Well, it can be. And I think for the most part in Afghanistan, we were. I mean, I don't even know how many wells we dug for water over there. I don't know how many job opportunities we gave to people to just move our stuff around. In a way, we were pacifist. It wasn't there was a a police force side of our job. That's true. But I'd say 95 percent of what we did was actually pacifist. If I'm being completely honest. Yeah. So there's I assume. Correct me. There are the local non-combatants, right? Not young men of military age that are proven to be uninvolved, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, old men and women and children and all these people that are just trying to live their lives and are non-combatants and you, you know, have them in one mental bucket, I'm imagining. And then you have the people that are actively taking shots at your wall, right? Actively shooting at your convoys. And those people, you got to go kill all of them, right? Isn't that the reality of the situation on the ground? Is that you're trying to root out the extremists so that you can return society and everyone to some sort of functioning uh, governmental system and system of living where they can be Afghanis and have a country that can stand on its own two feet and live? Well, I would say I agree with that, except that our goal wasn't to just go and kill them. People that shot at you? No, I mean, we want them to stop shooting, yes. But nobody had like this thirst for blood that they just want to go out and, oh, they shot at me. Let me put them down to just save everybody around. No, it was, we took people prisoners. We stopped them. We, we, uh, a lot, I'd say the majority of what we did was actually just investigation and following leads and things like that. And, and that was the bulk of what we did. I I would say most of the attacks didn't even have an assailant that we could directly confront. One of the deadliest events uh, that we even went through was just a, um, an IED in the middle of the road that went off and there, there was nobody to kill or retaliate against. It just, well, there was, you just didn't know who they were right, and where they were. Yeah. And that being said, it's not that it was all like, um, oh, we always did the right thing either. In in retrospect, I feel like we we kind of um, we didn't. And, and to this day, the military doesn't do justice to people that they're just holding on to indefinitely. <laughs> you, you know, like we took a lot of uh, uh, of people prisoners so they could be interrogated. Um, and we looked at them like they didn't have rights because they don't fall under the banner of the Constitution. And I think that a lot of people still look at it that way, that they should still be sitting in some military prison until they give us the answers that we want to hear. And and to me, that's just not right. I think that there are some fundamental rights that human beings have and force or a military that doesn't stand up for that needs to be a little bit more introspective about what they're doing. I I guess what I'm trying to say is that the majority of what we did was actually pacifist, even though people may not see it that way, generally speaking. At least I thought it was. I wouldn't have been cool with it. And, and, you know, there was um, a book, and maybe I've mentioned this before on the podcast. I think it's called uh, Ordinary Men. Have I mentioned that before? I don't think so. So I've always, being someone that was religious and being somebody that was in the military and someone that, you know, I, I actually enjoyed my time in the military. I thought that it was a... A positive, I feel like I had a positive effect on the world in the military. And I felt like the military that I was in actually had a positive effect. Some people would probably disagree with that. But I, from what I saw, that's how I feel about it. What has always fascinated me and something I kind of wanted to understand so I don't repeat the same errors is what happened uh, during the Holocaust. And what Ordinary Men is that book, it talks about how basic ordinary men that were around people, like just someone like me and you got conscripted into the Nazi regime. How could we mentally deal with and or justify the things that they were asking us to do? And that's what the book is about, how it takes ordinary people, how they could get to the point of doing the atrocious things that they did and then justify it uh, mentally. And that's what the book is about. I feel like that is easier said than done. I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't know what I personally would be like 
if I was put in the same situation as those Nazi soldiers. And I think that's why it's important to always kind of be introspective. You know, like, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing something and justifying it because I've been told to do it? I, and there's so many ways that you can go with that. But there's such a fascinating book about that mental behavior that I think if there was more people in the, the Nazi army and police force at the time that said, hey, maybe we shouldn't be bringing these babies out here and, and killing them because we know that they're not going to make the trip. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe there's something wrong with this and we shouldn't follow this order. Right. If you compare that to, you know, my experience with there being enough people to say, hey, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. Maybe we should stop him. I, I think in that in that sense, it makes our military not it makes it makes it lean more towards a, a, a passive organization than anything okay. that I was fine with, at least. So so what I think I hear you saying is that from your perspective, your service in the Af in, in Afghanistan was very much like policing, right? Yeah, like, that's the way I, I saw it. Yeah. So the United Nations has forces that they put into conflict zones to try to break up the conflict. Mm -hmm. And and that's how you saw your the, the things that you saw in Afghanistan. You felt like your your mission was what? to stop the fighting because I, I thought we were in Afghanistan to kill terrorists. Uh, I think that we were in Afghanistan to find and stop terrorists. It, to me, that made it more like a police investigative operation. You know, you can actually see something similar to that done here uh, with individuals. And I know that this is kind of a stretch, but um, the riots of 93, there was a guy that a white guy that got pulled out of his truck and beaten nearly to death. He ended up surviving. Do you remember what his name was? In 1993. It's in 93. It was in the 90s riots. And like it was the riots that came from Rodney oh, King. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, do you know who I'm talking about? The white guy? Yeah, that I remember. The, I forget the, so I I can't, the name of that I, guy. I can't think of his name, but I, it, it just has it burned into my brain like what he said. After he, in a, I think it was an interview, he, he was asked um, how he felt about, it. gosh, and I'm probably butchering the question, how he felt about, you know, like all these these black people beating him up. And his response was just really enlightening to me. It was, um, I don't remember the black people that beat me nearly to death. I remember the black people that saved me. In Afghanistan, it's, it's, it's kind of the same way in the sense that you have to pull out of this mob or group of people the bad ones through investigation. And you have to get the pieces of shit out of there that not only are affecting our country, but literally are bringing their own country down. And and that's just, I guess, how it how it was. And, and case in point, like, let's say we had, you know, s some people protesting on our street and they were they formed like this mob and they were walking towards my house. And you could tell that some of them wanted to just drag me out and beat me to death. Right. Can't indiscriminately shoot into the mob. Because legally, there's some there's some good people in the mob, right? There, there There's the people that are going to pull the bad ones off of you that don't have this unified intent to harm me. They just want to be protesting, right? Once someone makes a move or whatever, does something that actually directly threatens my life, then I can force them to stop, you know, with a firearm or whatever. But I can't indiscriminately, indiscriminately group them together as like a bad group of people that I can go out and shoot and kill and all this. I guess what I was trying, what I'm trying to say here is, is that part of the military's job in Afghanistan that I saw was determining who the actual bad people were and at least valuing their life enough to arrest them and not execute them on the spot. You know what I'm saying? It's like, so to me, it was exceptionally far leaning towards a police and investigative operation than a seek and destroy mission, if that makes sense. Which is actually one reason why I feel like. Bush and Obama and and now Trump and now even Biden technically should all be prosecuted under war crimes. Right. All of them. And the reason why is because they indiscriminately give orders to drop bombs on innocent people. And, and in contrast to what we were doing there, at least that I saw, we were doing the investigation to weed out the pieces of shit and arrest them. And not trying to blow their children up and and indiscriminately drop bombs on everybody. That right there is the aggressive military part that I, I completely disagree with and, and not something that I was ever involved in. So so looking back 20 years in Afghanistan, do you feel like overall we had a positive effect after however many trillion, 10 trillion dollars or whatever we spent? 
I, I think we did. Whether or not we should have been there for that long is certainly debatable, but I don't think that we were a negative presence. I, I mean, you can kind of see when we pulled out, it seemed like it all fell apart. Um, people that were good um, that helped us are now kind of abandoned to this anarchy, <laughs> almost like a purge. And, and we weren't there to defend them anymore. And I, I think that we were a stabilizing force against evil people that aren't in the majority, but they just have too much power, I think. But that's just kind of my interpretation of it. I'm not saying that's a justification to stay either. So my, I think my dad called me when we were pulling out of Afghanistan, and he was extremely upset about how the withdrawal was going. I My response was I, I didn't know what we thought was going to happen like i i thought it was inevitable that that was going to happen it's going to be a shit show i mean when you roll the military in against whoever the standing government is that doesn't want you there like invading a country is a shit show and then leaving a country is a shit show i mean yes you can try to mediate how bad it is but i was surprised that he was surprised i guess my prediction would be you know, in the fall of Saigon or leaving Afghanistan or any of these operations that when you leave a massive power vacuum that you've been enforcing with hundreds of thousands of guns, <laughs> a power vacuum gets filled. Right. right yeah. So it's going to be fucking ugly and it's going to be ugly whether you do it one year or 20 years later, it's going to suck. And yeah, you can try. And yeah, anybody who helped our troops over there, should absolutely be green carded or visaed or citizened or whatever. If you were a translator, I mean, my take on if you were a translator for the U.S. military, you and your family should be American citizens. Like if you risked your life and now your life is in danger. Yeah. You are welcome with open arms into this country. That's how I feel about it. Oh, yeah. And I actually 100 percent agree with that. One thing, too, that I feel like I learned over there was uh, I don't even know how to describe this, but there's a um, so it seems like on the politically here in the United States, we the left looks at the United States, the westernized culture, like somehow it's bad or that there's superior ones out there or whatever. And the right looks at things like, well, the westernized culture is good because of religion. <laughs> the funny thing is, I think that they're both wrong in the sense that a westernized culture actually values individuals. And they have we have this mindset where, well, let me give you an example. You know, in the Bible, what makes Christians good <laughs> is that they're westernized, not the Bible, because if they followed the Bible, strictly speaking, they'd be atrocious and evil and terrible shitbags probably should be looked at like the Taliban, right? And and that's what the Taliban is. They're non-Westernized, strict adherence to their religious values. If you took Christianity and said, let's be the, the Taliban version of the Christianity, we would remove all Westernization out of them and they wouldn't know how to moderate themselves. I think that where we failed in Afghanistan is we thought that it was religion that gives us our values we thought that uh, we'd be able to go over there and westernize them to treat them to value others. And we didn't accomplish that mission before we left. And therefore, their extremism just took right back over again. I, I think that we did a disservice by staying over there so long because we were delusional about what would happen no matter when we left. Because you can't force people to adopt those principles, in my opinion. And that's, I think, uh, at least internally, that's kind of what I saw that the good people that were over there were good. Not because they followed their beliefs, but because they ignored the religious beliefs that they should, just like we do. So when you say Westernization, what are you, as opposed to what, what do you mean by that? So that, I mean, I think that's actually a good question. I, I think that, I don't know if you've ever heard of the psychological term of like a weird society. Mm-mm. I could look it up if you wanted, but um, it, it's an actual acronym that uh, psychologists use to describe the westernized civilization. And I'm not even talking about just the United States. What I am talking about is. Yeah, well, I get I get concerned about this because the Proud Boys are Western chauvinists and I don't know what they mean by that. Oh, yeah. I <laughs> and don't. So I'm I'm currently triggered by your use of <laughs> westernization. See, and that's trying to the understand thing. what the fuck you're talking yeah. about. So and that's the thing. So like, that's what I was saying to the left looks at like Westernization is bad. And the right looks at it like I'm, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying that the, the terminology you're using lumps you in with a bunch of people who have done atrocious things. And I'm, I'm just trying to understand what you mean, because usually what happens is every time I take a political term to somebody, 
they understand that political term differently. So so <laughs> you, you can't ever understand anyone's politics until you understand what they mean. They have to define all their terms before you can even start to understand their their politics. And that that's, you know, what makes trying to understand politics so complicated because i don't i don't know what i don't know what the proud boys mean because they won't tell me and i don't know what you mean because you're looking it up on google <laughs> no so like mine's actually kind of based upon a book called um the righteous mind and he goes in that book he talks about um how westernized society is a weird society and the the, the weird being an acronym for different principles that the society has adopted and when I say westernized, I mean the original westernized society that that begin to question the morality of what they did. Question the morality of what they did. Historically. Yeah, basically it was westernized society that initiated getting rid of slavery. They said, hey, wait a minute, should we should we be doing this? So I think we should just link to that book, I guess. Yeah. And um, I actually I think I have a printed out version if you wanted to borrow it. But um, it's called The Righteous Mind. And they basically the guy is actually an atheist, uh, but he talks author of a book titled The Righteous Mind is an atheist. Yeah. So (laughs) really, it's a complicated topic. What what does what do any words mean is what I'm now asking. Because I thought righteous was very much a religious term. (laughs) Well, anyway, that's fine. We we can we can cross link all those. Western educated, industrial, rich, and democratic. That's what weird stands for. And it's a, it's kind of like a mindset where it says we're getting away from the old historic version of let's do witch hunts or let's do, uh, let's follow this God that says whatever he says goes, you know, it's, it's more like a, a down to earth, educated and advanced society that basically says, Hey, we shouldn't be doing that stuff anymore. And we, we can't just give people that. It's almost like a development that needs to occur inwardly in a society. Yeah. So I personally trust a humanitarian ethical system far more than because God said so. Because what I worry about with religion is that whatever they say God said, that's what they're going to do. I don't, I don't, I don't find uh, religions very convincing in yeah. their argumentation of where ethics comes from. So Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So I'm still stuck on the weird. What? So it'd be hard for me to answer that any question that you have about it right now, because it's actually been about five years, I think, since I read that book. Um, but it's kind of more of like a generic term that describes, at least in my mind, what's missing from Afghanistan that we couldn't deliver that we thought we could. The well, the, the, the world building, the, the global police force and nation building philosophy, right? Mm-hmm. is that and I'm not saying our leadership had this at the time, but when we roll into Afghanistan, all we have to do is set up, you know, new roads that work better for whatever and set up a voting system. And now we're going to have a fully functioning democratic society Then they can vote on new leaders. And boom, now we've we've fixed Afghanistan. Right. Mm-hmm. That under the nation building umbrella, that would be great from our perspective. Right. Like the more democracies that are running around in the world, you know, consuming Nike shoes, the better off. We are. And we don't have to worry about homegrown terrorist cells because those homegrown terrorist cells will be found by that nation's police force and their version of the NSA and their version of the FBI or whatever. And they'll take care of that before it ever gets to America and blows up our building. I think that's what we were you know, hoping for. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be able to plant a bunch of military bases there so we can continue to spread the eagle of freedom. Yeah. You know, around the world. Exactly. And I think that that actually that what you're kind of saying there actually perfectly well, not really. perfect. I guess um, what I'm trying to say is, is that the weird society concept is what's missing from the equation when we just give them the stuff. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, like, let's say we, we we encounter this country and we think to ourselves, well, they're all dying from thirst and hunger. If we just go down there and build a bunch of roads and build a bunch of wells. So if you, if you build the schools, then hopefully the E from weird comes in, right? Well, that, I guess that's kind of what I'm, there's like a, there's like a missing piece that facilitates how we are today in the United States, at least the good people in the United States. We're not good because we have schools and we're not good because we have wells and we're not good because we have water. It's the, it's the, it's the other way around. 
we're good and therefore we work to achieve those things. And that's why when we give those things, thinking that it can build another country and then the moment we leave, it deteriorates into nothing and goes back to the wild way that it was. That stuff that I'm saying is missing is what it's hard to give to a society. And that's why it's hard for me to describe what westernization is and weird cultures are because I that thing that's missing <laughs> is what the definition of weird that I can't just regurgitate right now. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, what you just proposed is this American exceptionalism where we're good people and therefore we have good shit. Right. And I don't think that's true at all. Well, I, I, the only thing I would add to that is that when I say westernized, I don't mean American. I mean that thing that's missing from the well and the stuff. You, you see what I'm saying? It's, I'm not trying to say that the uh, United States has a monopoly on westernization. In fact, I think that we actually inherited it from the, the already westernized European nations before ours was even started. Right? We don't have a monopoly. We did not create westernization. It is a concept and a mindset and a mentality that people need to embrace. And that is what is missing from the Afghan people that we could not deliver. There's no. Yeah. So I think white, rich tyrants have been saying that for hundreds of years. <laughs> What's that? Wherever they go in the world, it's like, oh, well, of course, the British have to take over India and subjugate them under the queen or the king at the time, because these people just don't don't have the thing. So it's hard not to see that as a, a rich white person's. But at the same thing. time. And so that that then looks like a racist lens where it's like, oh, because you're white, you're better because what else is it? So the thing that's missing, I feel like Hong Kong has, but mainland China does not fully have yet. They haven't fully embraced the concept. Um, Capitalism. Uh, well, it's almost like uh, a respect for individuals. Rich South, individuals. <laughs> Sa- South Korea, it's a concept that South Korea has, but North Korea doesn't. And I wish that I was better at saying what it was. <laughs> All right, but you're, but, but you're saying it's it's not racial. You're saying it's not racial, and it's not purely who the wealthy people are. Right. Right. And, and this is the, this is what kind of gets me is that I think a lot of these things actually start in societies that are developing and people that are developing. And then it actually kind of somewhat goes away once they get spoiled and they become rich. Like the, some of those principles that made them rich, they throw in the garbage once they're spoiled, rotten pieces of crap. And it goes for anybody. Uh, LeBron James, it goes for uh, Elon Musk, anybody that's rich kind of loses this concept. And that's a personal opinion of mine. That's not, I don't have any evidence to back that up. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that since I can't really put my finger on what it is, it's not necessarily people being rich. It's a, a set of moral values that allow society, society as a whole to prosper. Oh, so, so here's my theory on it. My theory is in Afghanistan, what you have is geography and a thousand different tribes that are all split apart like crazy with no easy transport and infrastructure because of the mountain ranges that exist there. And the fact that there aren't, you know, 80 billion miles of paved roads, you know, allowing easy movement around. Right. So we tried to build the ring road in Afghanistan and it kept getting attacked. Right. And we kept trying to build it and we'd spent billions of dollars on the ring road. And it kept getting blown up with IEDs and shit. Well, when you have a society that's grown up for, you know, hundreds or thousands of years based on local tribal affiliation right so like my my local clan in my valley is the one that i care about well of course it is it's like all the people that i know and every once in a while one cousin will go to Kabul and come back but you know it's generally speaking we are the people that are in this valley right mm-hmm. this, this is i've never been there I, you know more about them than i do <laughs> but my theory is that when you grow up tribal like that and very localized you have very localized mentality and everything you know about life is extremely local on that level and you're extremely rural and you're extremely poor right you're not all invested in a highly connected capitalist system it takes generations for you to be able to trust things like democratic elections right like what are these polling places what are you talking about why should i let votes from another tribe be equal to my own i know what's good for my tribe i know what's good for my people in my valley and so I think it's just a multi-generational shift to any kind of national scaled sort of rule of law. Whereas what's been working for us forever is that the local imam, you know, blah, 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 blah. Oh, we're, we're wrapping up, Chris. This is any thoughts on that? Like, like, I don't think there's inherently anything in any specific individual. I think you are what you're taught, 
right? Children yeah. are what they're taught. And if they grow up with the legal system where if someone robs me, the correct answer is to call a phone number and then someone with a gun shows up and they make it better, then that's what you'll do. And if you grow up in a society where, oh, no, now that's, you know, war and now we have to kill each other over this thing or whatever, then that's that's what you do, because that's what you know, because that's what you've been taught. That's all you know your whole life. Right. Right. So I don't think there is a thing inherent to a, quote, westernized, you know, Western perspective that's inherent, like genetically or inborn into new babies at all. I don't think that's true at all. Oh, I don't think it's genetic either. Yeah. So the the, the whole you, you'll have to explain to me in a way that doesn't sound racially charged what Westernization is other than. I grew up in a functioning society with a functioning democracy and a functional rule of law. And therefore, we can all cooperate and collaborate on a local state and you know national level because we have this capitalist infrastructure that keeps us all you know happy. I do work. I provide things of value. I get money, blah, blah, blah. You know, that if that's a society I grow up in that, you know, that's fine. But I don't I don't know why I don't think it is better than people who grow up in sub-Saharan Africa where they're dirt poor, you know, by they're they're just not in the capitalistic system. They rarely use money, right? Because they're subsistence farmers or they're subsistence fishermen. And yes, money is involved in their lives, but you know, they're, you know, super broke, but they live their whole lives in a way that works for them and has worked for generations. You know. Yeah. Well, I guess I just did. I, I guess I don't really see how what I said was racially charged. But what I will say is that it is more than one thing that makes our society good. And the thing that makes when I compare Afghanistan to us, I, I, I guess I kind of there's something universal in our society. There are exceptions where people use a different set of criteria to make judgments. And to them, it's heavily justified by religious teachings. And to us, we've been conditioned in most cases to override religious teachings, take a more civil course of action in what we do. I don't think most Americans would say that. I think most Americans would say that they are Christians and they're following the way that God wants us to live. Yeah. And I think that that's, uh, I think they're just ignoring yeah, I think they're, they're wrong. <laughs> they're, they're conveniently ignoring some principles because they're westernized and part of a weird culture. And that's kind of my point. The stuff, the thing that's making them ignore the shitty stuff is what Afghanistan needs. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. No, and you, you yeah. said the left hates it. And I, I guess you're right because it, it triggers in me. When, when you say Western culture, I think, well, in opposition to what? Eastern culture? What? You hate Asians? Like what? what is you're not westernized, so therefore, you know, we have to go invade the Congo. Oh, I like, see what you're saying. That, that, that's, yeah. that's the framework that happens in my head. Yeah. So, so when I hear Western social, uh, sorry, Western chauvinist, right, which is what the Proud Boys say, what I hear is, even though the leader of the Proud Boys, on, on, he's on his way to jail now, but he's, you know, Cuban, not white. <laughs> yeah. Because I guess Cubans don't consider themselves white. You know, you, you can consider yourself whatever you want. I don't care. But anyway, he's his, hey, we're not racist thing is all, what are you talking about? Everyone in this room is Hispanic and I'm the leader. We can't be racist, <laughs> right? Yeah. That's his thing. Well, anyway, so he says Western chauvinism refuses to define that. Anyway, that that's the whole cascading trigger in my head, just so uh, you know. Yeah, I guess I just don't know much about the Proud Boys. But I will say that this article you're, actually... You're better off not knowing much about the Proud Boys, yeah, as I mean, far I as just, I can tell. I just don't really Congrats. care of care about those kind of organizations to the point to where I research them. I, I just, I guess I just leave it up to law enforcement to figure out who they are and the pieces of shit they are and whatever the case may be. Maybe they're even not. I don't, I don't even know. One thing to point out about this, and maybe this uh, could just be a lead into our next podcast, maybe when I was actually trying to find some information on this, it's related to the racial portion of gun control laws. That's what this article is about. It was actually nearly impossible for me to find some information on this, but it actually comes from a portion of that podcast that we listened to where he says something about um, uh, nonviolent uh, gun violations. Like, like, let's say you're in Illinois and you just have a gun on your side, you're, you're concealed carrying a firearm, but you have no criminal past. You have nothing that would say uh, anything that you're a prohibited possessor, you just didn't get permission from the government to get it. Oh, and, and by the, so we're pulling you over at a traffic stop and we see you have a gun on you. Mm -hmm. Illinois basically made it to where that's a mandatory one to three year 
prison stint. What I was actually looking for was the racial bias in the prison sentencing that came from that. This article is actually astounding at the racial problems that come from gun control laws themselves. They don't actually make it about that. But uh, for example, the non the just the possession portion, like let's say if that same person came to Nebraska and he applied and got a gun permit, he would be able to get it. You transplant that person into Illinois. Let's say they live in a really shitty neighborhood. So they're like, I need some protection. So he he just not from the cops or anything, but from the other people that he wants to protect himself from. Mm-hmm. He has it on him. He just happens to get pulled over because he has a taillight out, whatever. The cops are like, hey, you can't have that on you. We're going to prison. Right. So somebody that would be allowed to do that here goes to prison for one to three years there. Like uh, the uh, 51 percent, I think 53 percent of all cases are black people. Fifty one percent. That is astounding. Other criminal laws. It's it's like down around like 25 to 30 percent black people. This one gun control law. We, we basically throw people in jail for them exercising a constitutional right or at least trying to protect themselves. Right. Mm-hmm. And and that's what this is kind of talking about is the racial implications of gun laws. Oddly, when I was trying to find some information on this, I Google would not give me anything. It was all about, oh, here's the gun statistics. Here's how much black people die to gun violence, whatever. It wasn't about the systemic stuff, which to me is the prosecution and the application of the law. That's the systemic part. I actually had to go to a different search engine to find this article. And to me, it's a reputable one. It's from Duke Law, but at any rate, uh, David Duke Law. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> that but, was a joke. <laughs> I guess I don't understand the but reference. David Duke is a very famous early KKK leader. Oh, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> didn't know that at all. But it I, was a funny joke, Chris. It was funny. It was. It sounds funny. <laughs> <laughs> it it would have been funnier if I would have known that at the beginning, but. <laughs> You can take that copy if I don't know if that'd be a good lead into like the next episode if we want to talk about that. Oh, sure. Why not? Let's talk more gun shit. Yeah. I haven't shot a year and a half, but that's definitely. <laughs> yeah. I need to go out and. All right. Well, thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. No, the, seriously, the, the your perspective growing up with a, with a cop as a dad and then signing up after 9-11 for for Afghanistan and then your time there and in your experience, what the military brought to Afghanistan, that's huge. That is all completely outside of my life experience. I have no life experience on any of that. So I really appreciate you sharing Hmm. those stories with me because that's very different than everything I know about, you know, the world. So, you know, and I, and I defer to your knowledge about all these things. So when I'm wrong, you know, just tell me to shut the fuck up because I don't know what I'm talking about. Cause you were over there for four years. Like yeah. I'm the first person to admit that I should not be, I, cause I don't know. And yeah. you know, so I'm trying to learn through conversations like that. So that's yeah. great. Yeah. Well, I would never say that my experience should override your thoughts on it. Well, no, I can, yeah. I can have thoughts, but, but my, your, your set of facts, right? You've got 10 billion facts in your head that are facts from your perspective in your time in the military. Yeah. Right. Well, that gives you 10 billion more things than I know. So if I tell you, oh, yeah, of course, this is how the army does the thing. And you fucking did it (laughs) a different way for four years in Afghanistan. Of course, you should tell me to shut the fuck up. I never served in the army. I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. (laughs) So. All right. Well, thanks for your time yet again. We'll be back for our our next weekly uh, podcast in two months. Yeah. See (laughs) you.